Hi, welcome to podcast number 57, brought to you by Health with Parkinson's. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center from Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome, Dr. Sue. Glad to have you at the show. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Great. So today we're finishing up part three of the American Academy of Neurology 2019 annual 12 takeaways. We'll be doing the last three, 10, 11, and 12. Yes, and, that's um, correct. Yes. I don't know if you want to group a couple of them together with the biomarkers or... Yes. So all of them, all three of them are related to one way or the other to biomarkers. So very briefly, I want to introduce the concept of biomarker. We've done this before, but it's probably worth repeating. Um, in Parkinson's disease, as most people know, uh, and the listeners know, there is no uh, test that we can reliably do to say that you have Parkinson's or not. And that's really a huge disadvantage. Um, for example, if you have diabetes, it's easy to just check your blood sugar, or you can look for something called hemoglobin A1C. These are biomarkers that allows us to definitively say that you have diabetes or not. And having that allows you for a simple test to know whether you have the disease. And also, it's a good way to monitor how well you're doing with the disease. So for example, there are benchmarks for hemoglobin A1C to say if it's below a certain number, that means your diabetes is under good control. Unfortunately for Parkinson's disease, as of today, we don't have a um, biomarker for disease diagnoses or for disease progression or for monitoring disease um, in terms of medications. We don't have any biomarker. So we still have to rely on um, good specialist doctors, seeing patients, and customizing treatment. There are good and bad to it. Um, the good news is that you get customized care and your specific needs are evaluated by your doctor and the treatments are tailored towards you as an individual and people don't treat you based on a number. So there's some advantage to doing it that way. So it's customized treatment. On the other hand, um, customized treatment requires expertise. So you actually need to find uh, people who have knowledge and skills and experience to do it right. Um, and that produces a huge demand and supply issue, and there are not enough um, trained specialists to take care of people. And that makes it much harder. Furthermore, I think for patients, for families and patients, um, there's a lot of frustration as to why is this one patient treated this way and why is this other patient treated the other way? Why is this person's result better than the other person's result? So there's a lot of heterogeneity, uh, non-uniformity of treatment and the way in which people respond. And that's very frustrating for people because there's no benchmark or a biomarker that you can say, ah, my number is so-and-so on my number is that. So this all is a big issue in Parkinson's disease. So given that background, there is a lot of interest in looking for biomarker. So this first study is an MRI signature for neuromelanin and ion pathology in Parkinson's. And this is again from the AAN meeting, American Academy of Neurology meeting that happened um, a few months ago in Philadelphia and was a presentation and what it was is that um, they tested MRI, uh, which is a brain imaging tool, but they um, tweaked it. They made it uh, very specialized. They looked at something called neuromelanin, 
and also looked at iron. Neuromelanin is a form of melanin, uh, similar to what gives color for your skin and your hair, but uh, this type of melanin is only in your brain cells, and that's why it's called neuromelanin. And it turns out that your Parkinson patients in the substantia nigra, the part of the brain where dopamine is produced, there's a lot of neuromelanin. So one way to look for the neuromelanin would be to use a specialized form of MRI, which can actually measure the amount of neuromelanin that's there. So in this uh, study, um, they decided to image neuromelanin. And as you can imagine, if you develop Parkinson's disease, what would happen is that the amount of neuromelanin will actually go down, will become less because there are fewer of these cells. And so this number, the neuromelanin actually goes down. And using that, they can, you know, sort of measure what might be happening to the brain. The other thing that could happen is that when the neuromelanin goes down, the iron that is contained within neuromelanin, neuromelanin has some iron in it. And there's also other iron in the brain, um, the cells that are dopamine, there are some iron in other forms as well. It actually comes out. And when the iron comes out, it's actually taken up by cells uh, in the immediate surrounding inflammatory cells called microglia, they take over the iron. And uh, so the iron content actually increases, goes up. So you can use this um, using a variety of different techniques, whether the iron goes up or the neuromelanin goes down or a combination of the two to see if you can diagnose Parkinson's or not. So in this study, they, they checked this out and what they showed is that um, they can use this technique with a high degree of accuracy to diagnose Parkinson's disease. Um, of course, as with all the studies, and this is true for this study as well, is that um, it's still compared to the gold standard of a doctor telling them whether they have Parkinson's disease or not. And obviously that has a, a problem because Ultimately, the gold standard is to look in the brain under a microscope, which you can do when somebody's alive. Um, so all these studies, including this particular study, as, as encouraging as it is, has the disadvantage that it doesn't have pathology. And pathology only comes much later, doesn't come when these studies are done. And that's always a downside. You know, how would you know now? You won't know it. You would have to wait for another 10 or 15 years before these individuals who had the MRI passes away or even longer sometimes. And then if they come up for autopsy, you can check their brains and compare with the MRI and say, yep, we're sure that this patient had Parkinson's disease or not. So um, it is a very encouraging thing. Um, it's not the first study to show neuromelanin and iron. There have been other studies. And, but this was a very interesting add-on indicating that when you combine neuromelanin with iron, it seems like a very uh, good uh, biomarker. A recent study that came out just a week or two ago also suggests the same idea, but they used um, something called artificial intelligence, AI, to analyze brains. And um, they did this in a much larger series of patients to again sort of argue the same point. But both these studies, the new AI study as well as this particular study that was presented in the AAN meeting, um, even though they're encouraging, it's not prime time yet. They're not ready for being applied to patients. 
but certainly encouraging and hopefully um, we'll make advances in the, in the short order to see how this works out. So the, uh, so it's not, it's not enough information to actually start following people for Parkinson's or treating them for Parkinson's. Not yet, but I think we're, we're getting there. I think we're making progress. MRI itself. Um, I, I was at another meeting, um, before this American Academy of Neurology, this, this happened in Montreal, and we actually did a session about the Montreal uh, meeting as well, which is the IAPRD meeting, the International Association for Parkinson's Disease and Related Disorders. And during that session, uh, one of the doctors from Stanford, um, she actually presented a summary of all the different MRI studies that are being done. And she brought up the same issue. She said, you know, we're making a lot of very good progress in using MRI, but in 20, 30 years of MRI research, we're still not there yet. And, and the reason why we're still not there yet is that um, we are close, but we don't have pathology. We can't see what the, the doctors are able to see under the microscope yet using an MRI. Um, we're getting there, we're getting molecular details, and there are better and bigger machines. There's something called seven Tesla machine is coming up, and a lot of studies are getting done in seven Tesla machine. They are very cumbersome, they're very big, they're very um, energy dependent, so when you get an MRI done on a seven Tesla machine, typically patients have headaches, and um, it's not an easy thing to do. And they're also super expensive, and there are only a few available around the world. Um, but as with everything else, technology will become cheap as we keep improving. And I'm sure once we start doing neuromelanin ion studies using more sophisticated machines, we will get close to the point where we can actually see pathology on a scan. Uh, and we can say, yaha, this is what it is. And we will be more definitive about these things. At, this, at the present time, it's not. It's not definitive. What if somebody had the uh, genetic profile, the family history, say they're Ashkenazi Jewish, mm. and they, they had this test and it showed the MRI with those changes. Would that be enough to follow somebody at this point? Um, again, I think uh, it's a research question. There are people doing that. Um, I know a, a group in... Uh, New York in uh, Manhattan uh, is part of uh, one of the universities in the New York area. They are doing longitudinal studies. They're actually doing this in collaboration with um, Chinese investigators uh, who have a similar machine, a, a large uh, seven Tesla machine. They're collaborating with them to you know, sort of ask the same question. And there is some advantage there because the Chinese have the advantage of population. There are many more people in China. The population there is almost 10 times more than America. So the number of patients that they get is enormous. So they can take advantage of the number of patients and see whether they can get to the answer quicker, faster using these techniques. So yes, they're looking to it. They're seeing whether genetic forms can be diagnosed earlier using these biomarkers. Yeah. But, but it's still not there yet. It's right. still happening, yeah. Okay, so we'll move on to number 11. Yep. The, uh, I guess you could just start that off, it's a little complicated. Yeah, so basically <clears throat> it's another way, again, another biomarker, but this one is not through 
taking MRIs or whatever. It's using uh, variable technology, technology where you can put it on patients and see. So a good example would be like a watch or um, one of those devices that you wear on when you do exercise, you know, exercise meters, things, things of that nature. So uh, digital biomarkers, what they call. So um, the question is, can you use a novel um, variable technology to diagnose Parkinson's disease and monitor uh, Parkinson's disease? And there are many such things going on. There's an Apple Watch, as many of you know. Apple Watch does have an app which allows you to measure tremor. Um, there's also um, similar smartwatches available that you can wear and you can test for uh, some of the data that you can get. Um, and uh, this particular presentation was suggesting that um, one of the techniques of the different things, one of them, which allows you to measure not only tremor but also movement pattern. So as you swing your arm when you walk, it measures the swing uh, density, meaning how often do you do it and how far does your hand move. Uh, it also measures your overall mobility. How much do you move? Are you overall less mobile or are you moving as much as other people do? So things like that, that they can use a combination of different things and then figure out whether um, you have Parkinson's and if you do have Parkinson's, whether you improve with medications or not. So this is an interesting, um, interesting uh, again, development. And I think um, more and more people are choosing these type of technologies. Um, one of my good friends and colleagues from Cincinnati, Dr. Alberto Espe, has been um, promoting this idea for a while now. And he has um, tested a number of different platforms um, he will be here in November and hopefully we will get a chance to include him in our, one of our podcasts and he'll talk a little bit more about some of the newer things that's coming along uh, along these technologies. But uh, needless to say, this particular uh, presentation at the AAN meeting, uh, this is from Lipsmeyer et al. And it's titled Preliminary Validation of a Novel Comprehensive Digital Biomarker Smartphone application to assist motor symptoms and recently diagnosed Parkinson's disease. They were able to use this particular smartphone in newly diagnosed Parkinson's disease to validate the symptoms and to follow the patients along, suggesting that at least in early disease, if you wear the watch and can be monitored, it can be a very nice tool to know how you're doing overall. Again, it's early days. It's not like everybody should go buy this watch and wear them. It's not that. But in, in research, it seems like it's promising and it seems like it's good, good technology. Uh, what everybody could do if you have Parkinson's disease and you already have either a smartwatch or you have a smartphone, you, you certainly can download for free some of the smartphone apps. And there is one from the APDA, American Parkinson's Disease Association, does have a smartphone tracker, which is an app, which is free. Um, anybody who's interested can go to the APDA website. And again, I'm, I will ask Warren to put this up in our, um, our website, you know, and you can certainly go there and uh, click on it and download it and put it into your phone. Uh, it is uh, called the APDA Symptom Tracker, and it is a, a smartphone app 
it does allow you to monitor medications, uh, monitor your symptoms, uh, monitor doctor visits. Um, it also links you to the podcast, the APDA podcast, which are not as frequent as ours. We do it every week and we will make an attempt to make a um, Parkinson's, uh, help with Parkinson's app as well, which will let you listen to our uh, podcast quickly and efficiently as well. But we're not there yet. But for those of you who want to get the app, you could certainly get the app and use it. Um, but this particular um, presentation at the AN was interesting, and it was something that I think we're going, getting closer and closer. Right. And the uh, good thing about this is the standard that's measuring the symptoms never changes, which is always the hard part when you have people, they, they try to get the same practitioner do the, uh, the scales. But I'm sure that after six months or so, they probably don't have a very good memory of exactly how the patient was before. Right. Where this is, true. everything's so, identical. Yes. So, yes, that is true. It is a standardized tool. But as with any uh, digital standardized tool, and I think I mentioned this already at the very beginning of our podcast, customization is difficult because, again, tremor in one patient is not the same as tremor in another patient. So there is uh, subjective variation of the symptom and how it affects people. Unlike blood sugar in one person versus blood sugar in another person, Blood sugar is blood sugar. You, you can't have too much of it. You can't, too, can't have too little of it. And the symptoms that low blood sugar produces uh, is by and large the same thing in everybody. And high blood sugar by and large produces the same thing in everybody. But that's not true in terms of Parkinson's symptoms. If you have tremor and you are a dentist, well, you know, think about it. You are going out in the waiting area with your tremor how many people are going to be willing to come and see you and have your tooth worked on by a dentist? Uh, it can be devastating. Even it's a bit of tremor in, when you go to receive a patient in the waiting area uh, can be devastating to your practice. Or if you're um, you know, policeman and you walk around with your hand with a tremor, even though you might be able to shoot the bullseye 10 out of 10, um, it has a PR, it's a public relations issue where you have to make the tremor better. So again, uh, the way Parkinson's symptoms affect you, affect an individual, and how it's monitored, treated, and cared for by your doctor, unfortunately, is extremely heterogeneous and variable. And it needs to be customized. And it has to be customized to the patient's situation. So yes, digital software, variable technology is an advance. But unfortunately, I think even with the best technology, you still will need customized doctors who will take care of you in a very specific way in the, any, any foreseeable future. Okay. So now uh, the last one, number 12. It's a very interesting study. It's probably the most out there in the left field kind of uh, paper, but very interesting and exciting. Um, so we all know that uh, dopamine is important in the brain. We've talked about this in many different podcasts. We've talked about um, where it's produced, how it's produced, how it's stored, how we restore it, et cetera, et cetera. But what this paper or this presentation showed us is that there's also dopamine in the blood, and it's in blood cells. 
um, something called mononuclear cells. These are white blood cells that are circulating in our bloodstream. And um, what these investigators showed that two of the enzymes, one is called that dopamine transporter, the other one is called tyrosine hydroxylase TH. Both of those molecules um, are present in white cells in the blood. And very interestingly, when they took the white cells uh, from patients and looked at them, they found out that this actually pretty high. The levels of these uh, happen to be pretty high in the uh, in, in PD patients than in controls. So they took white cells from people who didn't have Parkinson's disease and measured the amount of TH and DAT, tyrosine hydroxylase and DAT in these white cells. Um, they found out that it was pretty normal to low. But then if you did the same thing in Parkinson patient, the actual level seemed to be high. Um, and again, this could serve as a biomarker. So it could be a blood test that you could use to determine whether you have Parkinson's disease or not. Again, preliminary, early, it's not, not there yet. It's not proven that that's, we can do that. But very promising, uh, very interesting, and very suggestive. And this has other implications as well. Um, and what the other implication is that um, these cells, these white blood cells that uh, we found, they found to have high levels of that and TH, they actually are the same cells or sister cells that contribute to the microglia that I mentioned earlier. Microglia, if you remember, are the cells that surround the substantia nigra, and they are the ones that, that take up iron when the cells die and the neuromelanin is released, and the neuromelanin goes into the cell, and the way it goes into the cell is by uh, these white cells taking it up, the microglia taking it up. So um, it turns out that the white cells that we have in the blood are the ones that contribute to the microglia to some extent. And there is actually trafficking, which means cells go between the blood into the brain and brain into the blood. And there is cell trafficking of these cells, these, these so-called microglia mononuclear cells. There is trafficking. And so what that means is that uh, perhaps the reason why there is high DAT and high TH is because of the trafficking that's going on. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that um, simply because they are related, there is what we call upregulation. There is increase in the presence of uh, these enzymes in the, in the brain cells. We don't know which one it is, but um, there's a lot of interest in looking into it and people are um, examining this in more greater detail to see whether uh, there's altered dopamine transmission in, in these peripheral mononuclear cells in Parkinson's disease. Again, very interesting um, out there in the left field kind of study. Uh, most people don't think about it this way. Most of us who have been studying Parkinson's don't think about mononuclear cells having dopamine, but very interesting, very um, intriguing findings. So I think uh, there's a lot of interest at the meeting and hopefully we'll see more of these kinds of studies in, in, in the future. Nice. So um, I just have a question for you. If you, if some reason you, somebody that wanted to fund one of these studies asked you to put his $10 million into one of these 12, mm -hmm. which, which one would you, uh, would you pick? 
even though they may not, none of them may be the right one, but out of all of them, which one would be leaning towards the right one? I think, um, uh, I think that's a, that's a tough one, but what, 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 what would happen if that happened would be, um, the way I would seek it is not that way, but would be a slight different on it, a slightly different take on it, which would be to say, okay, you're the top 12 contenders in this meeting. Tell me where you are today with your thing, you know, not what you put in the meeting, but tell me what you're doing right now. Because most people don't put their um, immediate result in an actual meeting. They put stuff that they have already done six months ago in the meeting. And at the meeting, they're presenting stuff that they're more sure about, you know, like, oh, well, I think we have this result. Right. And more, more, more cutting edge stuff that's still going on, when it show up in another meeting in six months from today. So what I would do is get these 12 people and say, okay, show me what, what you have right now that's going on. And then, um, you know, look at their data and say, yep, which one is, looks like it's very close to, because every one of them have some really solid things to support. And um, the second question is, does every one of them need $10 million? Probably not. Like, you know, for example, the one that we talked about, which involves kickboxing or, you know, karate. Right. Uh, obviously, you don't need $10 million to study karate, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it depends on what studies we need to do, what the cost is going to be, and what the tangible results we think might produce. And then fund it. I think that's the funding philosophy of most um, organizations, whether it's NIH, whether it's Michael J. Fox Foundation, the APDA, whatever. The funding philosophy is to see what do you have to offer, what's the hypotheses, what is the tangible benefits people are going to get, and what does it take you to take this technology from point A to point B, which will help you move this to patients. And I think that's the right way to do it. I think we have to be careful, judicious, thoughtful in the way we do this. Right, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. So I think the key is, sounds like it's transparency. Yes. You can't hide things if, if you're not sure. Yes, of course. That's always true in anything in medicine. In fact, I would say it's true anything in life is that rigor, transparency, repeatability, those are key things, right? I mean, how rigorously you do the science, how repeatable it is. Can you get the same result again and again? And how reliable it is, you know? And if it's transparent, you, you say all the good and the bad. You don't just say only the good things and you don't talk about the bad things. Right. And all of these three things are very important for anything we do in life. And it's particularly important for um, things we do in medicine because we're talking about people's lives and we have to make sure that it's done correctly right so if everybody trusts that that people are telling the truth you'll end up funding the, the proper items proper right. proper right exactly good sounds good well thanks for uh this is this was a tough one a little bit at least 12 but you explained it really well thank you thank you and uh thanks for having me i hope uh the listeners enjoyed give us some feedback and uh we hope to keep doing some very interesting programs like this in the in the future Great. You have a good night. Uh, bye.